It's always interesting and fun to watch young children develop, isn't it? They're dependent on others for a significant time. And then suddenly things start to change a little, don't they? First they start to scoot around, and then they are crawling, and before you know it, they are pulling themselves up. And perhaps if you are, had a child like my youngest daughter, they are a climber. Not only climbing to places that you didn't imagine they'd be able to get to, but they're striving to get to places that you know they can't reach. You have to be on guard. And as kids continue to develop, they'll still stretch for things that are out of their reach, things they just can't get to. And sometimes they won't stop. They just keep on reaching and reaching and reaching. And eventually you have to intervene and give them what they're striving for or distract them to go someplace else. They just won't stop. Because there's always things that are out of reach. And as kids develop, this continues to happen. I always think about little bit older kids who are just tall enough that they think they can jump and reach the doorframe. And suddenly that becomes the general hobby of life, right? They're walking around the house, they're jumping and waving at it, trying to touch it, and they're like, oh, I almost got it. And you as the parent behind them are like, you were that far away, dude. <laughs> but that's what we do. We're, we're jumping up, we're trying to reach, we're trying to get up, trying to reach things that are too far away. And in many ways, we treat our relationship to God the same way. We feel as though we're the ones who are to elevate. We're the ones who are reaching to Him. Often we even look back to some past high spiritual experience and we think that back then we almost reached Him. We almost got Him. And so we just need to keep trying. We just need to keep reaching, keep jumping. We're always reaching up, trying to ascend to the next level, to the next thing. But the truth is that we have a God who comes to us. And in his mercy, he not only reaches down to us, he comes to us. And so as we continue through the book of Genesis today, and we head out on this journey with Jacob, we find this great truth on display that God comes to us. And as we look at this passage, we're going to break it down into three sections to help us navigate what God is doing in the life of Jacob here. And so the first thing that we're going to see is that Jacob sets off on a jury journey. And we know why he's on the move. We've seen this over the last few weeks. He's not only on a quest to find himself a bride from his mother's family, but he's also on the run. He has stolen the blessing from his brother, and that brother, Esau, has threatened to take his life. Secondly, we're going to see that God comes to Jacob in a dream. I've heard it said several times that if you look at the book of Genesis, the best things happen to the heroes of the faith in Genesis when they're asleep. And that's the case here for Jacob. God comes to him. It is not just a vague vision that is left for Jacob to wonder about and try to interpret. And you know, What is God saying to me here? No. God speaks in this dream to Jacob, and he confirms the covenant with him. This covenant we've been tracking, it's confirmed here with Jacob. And finally, Jacob responds with an oath. I've mentioned several times before that Jacob is a scoundrel. 
And even though he wants the blessings of the promise, and we know that the covenant line does rest with him, you know, we know the story, we've still seen that Jacob is not really a sympathetic character. He's not easy to root for. But here we finally see Jacob responding to God in gratitude. He's starting to understand now that he fully sees that the promise rests on him and that God will protect him. And so we begin the passage today as we see Jacob setting out on that journey, and we just have the first two verses, verses 10 and 11, to start. Now, these details we see here might seem like ancillary details. What, what difference does it make? Why are we drawing an entire point out of this? But there's something that I want to draw out that Moses does here in the text. As I often mention, we, we struggle to really grasp what's going on in a passage because most of the time we are reading it with a focus on getting through. You know, that's how we read. We want to get from page 1 to page 131 and be done. And so we miss a lot of the details. And not only that, but we miss details because we don't understand the landscape. We don't understand where these people were. So we just kind of jump over some of these details in the Bible stories trying to get to the main point, trying to get to the punchline. But often those details are an important part of what the Bible is saying. Now, I'm, I'm sure like many of you, or like, I'm sure many of you are like me, and you read something for information, and then you move on. You don't really stew on it. You're like, okay, I've downloaded that. Now let's go to the next thing I can download. And I, I don't really pay attention to literary devices very well, because I'm just generally not a story guy. I'm a book filled with facts kind of guy. So I'm just trying to get through fiction, get to the end, or get through through a biography or a true story. I just want to get to the end because I want the information. But here, and so often in reading the Bible, looking at literary literary devices is important. And so we tend to miss out on what is happening here in these two verses. If we go back and think about other parts of the book of Genesis, and we recall these two place names that we know that we that we have here in front of us, we know about it. Beersheba is where they are now. But Isaac and the people of God have not laid possession of Beersheba and of this promised land that God has promised. They're, they're merely sojourners in the land. But this is where God is going to lead them to. This will be the land that they inherit. Now, Haran, the other land, that's where Abraham came from. That's where God called him out of idolatry from. And so as we start this out, we have this feeling that Jacob is retracing the steps of Abraham. That's what we're meant to feel here in the text, that Abraham has come from Haran to Beersheba, to the promised land, and now Jacob is going back. Again, he's retracing the steps of Father Abraham. He's going in the opposite direction. But it's important because significant things would have happened in the life of Abraham here. Okay? Many of the things that we know about Abraham happened on this path. What will happen to Jacob on this path? And so we feel this in what Moses is doing by the way he tells the story. Notice what he says here. He came to a certain place. He took stones of that place. He laid down in that place to sleep. It's like he's going out of his way to make sure we don't know what that place is, but he wants us to know that Jacob is at the place. Now, 
What this calls to mind for me is he sounds like parents with a young child that they don't want to clue in the little youngster about where they're going. So they have different code ways of, of, doing, uh, of communicating that information that you're going to be doing something fun or you're going, something, going somewhere. Now, when we were, when we were uh, early parents, only had one child, Anna was little, we lived close to the amusement park, Cedar Point. It was just a five-minute drive away. We had season passes. And we quickly discovered that we couldn't hide that place name from Anna because Cedar Point, when you spell it out, C-E-D-A-R-P-O-I-N-T, sounds like Cedar Point. Discovered that really quick. Like, what did we do that for? That wasn't very smart. So what we would do is we say, do you want to go to the place for a few hours this evening, right? That's what this sounds like. And, and Moses is kind of doing the same thing here. He's drawing out that we're going to be going somewhere, that, or that Jacob has arrived at a place, but he isn't quite ready to tell us where yet. He's keeping it a secret. And so he's holding this all in tension, and we're going to find out. And by the way he lets us sit there, you have to know it's going to be significant when we do find out where Jacob is. So there's one other point out of, so there's one other thing out of this first point that, that we want to see before we step on to the second point. Notice that it says the sun is going down. So there's an ominous feeling over this passage here. He's out in the wilderness on his own. He's on the run from someone who wants to kill him. What's going to happen? Will Jacob be safe? The sun is going down. Will he be taken by wild animals? Will Esau be able to sneak up on him? What is going on? Will Jacob, will the one who is, now has the covenant line resting upon him, be safe out here in the wilderness? And we find out that he will be because Jacob has a dream. And it's a substantial dream. He sees a ladder set up on the earth. Now you and I, probably imagine an extension ladder when we hear this story, when we hear about Jacob's ladder. We probably think of an extension ladder or a step ladder because that's where our minds would go because that's our cultural default, right? But the idea here is, is more of a staircase. And it calls back to something that we have heard about already in the book of Genesis. The, the imagery, the idea is similar to that at the Tower of Babel, that there's something going up to God. Back at the Tower of Babel, they were trying to reach God on their own, but their work was foiled by God, mixing up their languages. And so we need to remember something about what's been going on in the life of Jacob so far. Remember, he wants the promise, he wants the inheritance, he wants the birthright, and he'll do anything to get it. He'll do anything to get it. He works things around to obtain Esau's birthright. He deceives Isaac to receive the blessing. He's trying to reach God and his promises on his own. He's doing it all himself. But now, where do we find Jacob? He's asleep. He's asleep. He can't do anything. He's been trying to reach God on his own, but now he's asleep. And as we see here in the text, Jacob is not interacting with this ladder, with this staircase at all. He is asleep. He doesn't get anywhere near it. Who is on it? The angels of God are ascending and descending. This isn't Jacob's ladder like we call it. He has nothing to do with it. 
This is God's ladder. This is how God comes to Jacob. And we find here in the text that the Lord is standing above the ladder. Now there is some questioning here in translation on how to render the phrase that we're looking at here of the Lord standing on the ladder. It, it can actually be rendered and translated as God standing next to Jacob. That God came down and he was next to Jacob to speak with him. In fact, most Bibles have a footnote that says, hey, this can be translated this way. And so the idea is that, that God came down and he's speaking with Jacob He isn't doing it from afar, but he's come near to Jacob. And we get that familiar language that we talk about all the time in the book of Genesis. That's what's going on here. This is a covenant promise that God is speaking over Jacob. God introduces himself as the Lord, the God of Abraham and of Isaac. And then this promise that we keep on hearing is restated And we find the same three elements that we've seen since Abraham, right? There's the land promise, the promise to expand his offspring, and the promise that through this promise, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. It's on repeat. Over and over, we're being reminded of the covenant promise of God to the people of God. All the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. Someday, that Messiah, that one who will crush the head of the serpent, is going to come from the line of Jacob. And it's obviously important because God is restating the promise again. It's being driven home to us, but this time to Jacob. And it's a continuing promise. It's part of that promise that I mentioned that started all the way back in the garden at the fall when God said that one would come who would crush the head of the serpent. And that promise and the other elements of the promise that we've seen developing through the book of Genesis are not just a promise made to Eve and Adam, They're not just promises made to Abraham and Isaac. This promise is continuing. And that is why this event, this dream that Jacob is having is amazing. Jacob, even though he's a scoundrel, even though he's been trying to acquire the promise on his own, he's still the child of the promise. God in his mercy is continuing what he said he would do. And here it's being confirmed to be continuing through Jacob, even though he's a scoundrel, even though he's trying to get it on his own, God is going to keep the covenant promise. And this is a substantial promise, and it's a promise of grace. Remember back to what I said a few moments ago. The sun is going down, and this gives this interaction with God an ominous feeling. And I think it does us well to think even further back to what Jacob's life has been like. Remember what his name is, His name means he's a deceiver. He's a heel grabber. He's trying to do things on his own. And he has even deceived to receive the blessing of God. Remember back to the story with Isaac? Who did he say provided the animal for the the meal to Isaac? He said the Lord had provided. He lied. He violated the third commandment. He took the Lord's name in vain. And we should be remembering that as we think about this ominous scene. Jacob is not only a deceiver, but he also deceived using the name of God. A textbook example of violating the third commandment. If you were reading this story for the first time and thinking about God meeting Jacob, you would likely think he's going to get his. It's a time for judgment. Look at all the stuff that that Jacob has done. 
And on top of it all, he violated the third commandment. It's about time God came in judgment on him. It's about time. You would assume that he would be chastised for what he's done. But that's not at all what's happening here, is it? This blessing is all about God. This blessing is all about mercy. God is going to keep his promise. And we see this when we read that God tells him that he's going to remain with Jacob and fulfill this covenant promise through him. And the language is clear. God is going to come through. He does not break his covenant. And that covenant is all about him because he is a God of mercy. He is a God of grace. He is a covenant-keeping God even when his people are covenant breakers. And as the passage concludes, we see that Jacob understands God in a way that we've never seen before. And he responds to this mercy that he has been shown with gratitude and with an oath. When he wakes up, he doesn't wonder what he ate that night that gave him a dream. He doesn't say, well, that was crazy. That's the last time I used a stone as a pillow. He knows it was the Lord. Jacob understands that God is in that place. He knows God was there. It it was a dream, but still, God met with him there. And so, finally, after all the tension about what the name of this place is, Jacob gives it the name Bethel. Now, Abraham named a place where God met with him, Bethel. And now Jacob is doing the same. And so we understand why Moses kept the place name a secret here in the story. He was building the tension with his audience who would have known these place names, and now they know that this is where God met with Jacob. And they understand the significance of it because Bethel means house of God. Beth, house, El, God. The house of God. And the people also would have known something else about Bethel. Because Jacob takes that stone pillow of his, and it's a landmark for the people of God to look at for when they go by Bethel, or if they live there, they'll see that, that this was the place where God met with Father Jacob. And it's a reminder of the faithfulness of God. It lets them know that God is gracious. It lets them know that God is merciful and that he keeps his covenant promises to his covenant people. And finally, we see that Jacob's response to all of this is to make a vow. And this is the longest vow in the Old Testament. Jacob has been living in a state of uncertainty. He is on the run from a brother who wants to kill him. He's sent away to get a wife from his family in a place a long way from where he has been. But in the midst of all these unknowns, God has made himself known. And we have to understand what this must have meant for Jacob. It isn't just that he's going to have all this stuff in the future because of these promises. It also means he's going to survive. He's going to make it. Because in order for his people to possess the land, Jacob has to survive in the wilderness. He has to survive Esau wanting to hunt him down. In order for him to have offspring like the dust of the earth, he has to find a wife. And if all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him, the covenant promise has to be passed on to the generations to come. And that means Jacob makes it through what he is currently living in fear of. And we see this. He states the facts of it all. If God sustains him and brings him back, well, 
then the Lord will be my God. And that's significant. At no point prior has God been stated to be the God of Jacob in in Genesis. You can check me on that. Jacob has never said, my God. It's always been my father's God, or the God of Isaac, the God of Abraham. But now, what does Jacob say? He says that God is his God. He says that he will be my God. This is substantial, and so he sets up that pillar as a memorial so that for generations to come, they will see the promises of God. And then he commits to giving a tithe. And this is significant too, because we know someone else who was blessed, someone who had the covenant promise confirmed to them, and then they gave a tithe also. Remember back to Abraham and Melchizedek. When Melchizedek blessed Abraham, he gave a, gave a tithe. Because the people of God returned to God a portion of what he has given them as a response for his mercy and for his grace. The people of God do not give out of compulsion, but out of gratitude for the love that God has shown them. And so we come to the end of this passage, and we think about how we can apply it to our lives. But there's something really important that we need to do here today before we can move on to that. We have seen the covenant promise that God has made, but we are blessed to be able to look forward to that promise. And then we can better understand this passage. And so we're going to go to the Gospel of John very quickly. Because Jesus there is calling his disciples. And Nathanael is amazed right there in John chapter 1. Nathanael is amazed at what Jesus is able to know about him. And Nathanael responds just in disbelief, but also in belief. He's amazed at what Jesus knows about him, but his statement is, that Jesus is clearly the Son of God. So we see here what Nathanael has to say in John 1, verses 49 through 51, but what Jesus has to say is even more important. Because he tells Nathanael that he's going to see far greater signs than him being able to tell him that he was sitting under a tree. He says that Nathanael will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Do you recognize the language? We've heard it before. What is Jesus saying? Because he's using the description of the ladder that we just read about in Genesis. And so Jesus is saying, Nathaniel, if you think that it's neat that I can tell you details about your life, you're going to be even more amazed because I am the ladder that Jacob saw in Genesis. I am God coming down to his people and I'm the God who rescues, him, rescues his people by my grace. And this is just as one of those amazing things about how the story of Scripture is knitted together to form the beautiful story of redemption. The story in Genesis is about the covenant promise that will lead to the Messiah. An integral part of that story is the promise confirmed to Jacob in his dream about the latter and how the seed of the woman came in the person of Jesus and came down to suffer and die for his people, that he might bear the wrath of God for our sin. And here Jesus is letting us know that just as God came to Jacob and didn't require him to stretch up and be continually reaching to him, we also have a ladder set before us 
But it isn't there for us to climb, for us to try and reach God on our own. Instead, our ladder is the Lord Jesus Christ. And He has come down to us. And He has rescued us by His mercy and His grace. Not because of anything that we have done, but solely because He is gracious and merciful. And He keeps His promises to His covenant people. Jesus is the ladder. And He has come to us in His life, death, resurrection, and ascension to save us by His grace. So we look at this whole amazing story. And now it's ultimate fulfillment in the Lord Jesus. And we consider how we can apply this passage to our lives in this coming week. And the power of this story is that all of it is rooted in what God is doing. Jacob is out in the wilderness by himself. He's asleep. And God comes to him and confirms the covenant. And Jacob isn't doing a bit of it. He's the recipient of God's blessings, and he does nothing to earn it. And this is true of us also. We're saved solely by God's grace. We were rescued while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and we were brought to life in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the end of this passage shows us that that Jacob makes a vow that the Lord will be his God. And then what does he do? He gives sacrificially to God, not to earn anything, but because he understands that God is faithful. And so the question of application, the challenge to us, that I want us to ask ourselves this week, is what is my response to God descending to me? What's my response? How does the mercy and grace of God inform how I live? Do I desire to be faithful to God because I think he'll give me something? That I'll be faithful to God and so because I'm faithful, he'll he'll bless me? Or am I desiring to be faithful to God because he has first been faithful to me? He has first loved me. Do I help others and give sacrificially because I think God will punish me if I don't? Or do I look at the opportunities to serve and to give as a natural response to the truth that God has first served and given to me? And this is one of the most important assessments that we can make about our lives because it deeply impacts how we view God. When we understand God is the one who came down to us to rescue us, we will look at God, we'll look at the world, we'll look at ourselves in a completely different way than if we think that we have to climb up the ladder to him and reach out to him on our own. It deeply impacts how we view God, how we view the world, how we view ourselves. So may we be a people of God who deeply trust in the God who came down the ladder to his people. Instead of believing that we stretch to him, may we relish in the truth that by giving us the gift of faith, he has embraced us. And may we let that truth shape us and form us by the power of the Holy Spirit to faithfully witness to the world about this God who comes to his people and saves them by his grace. May we boldly witness to the God who comes down the ladder and embraces his people in love. Amen.